Grant's staff, you see all the leaders of the Army of the Potomac. But who's that fellow in the corner, Colonel Eli Parker, and why should we know about him? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In the great scheme of things, a minute isn't all that much, unless you happen to have a stroke. All of a sudden, those minutes count. Minutes that could mean losing your ability to talk, move, or walk. Which is why, if you can get help in time, your stroke can be treated. The warning signs of a stroke include sudden numbness or weakness of the face. If you experience this, call 911 immediately. Visit strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE today. A public service announcement from the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Looking for answers in real estate? We break it down for you. Each week, the Exeter Group explores how successful investors evaluate and acquire real estate to build their portfolio. From financing tips, tax and accounting strategies, and advice on how to control risk, the Exeter Group entertains and informs while divulging secrets used by the most successful investors. Tune in to the Exeter Group every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Studio A. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with our guest, he is the historian at Appomattox Courthouse National Historical Park in Appomattox, Virginia. His name is Patrick Schroeder, and we've been discussing the uh, myths that surround the surrender at Appomattox. There are many stories that have grown up around it uh, that even uh, veteran Civil War readers may uh, may have thought were true. Uh, one such story possibly concerns the, the actual surrender ceremony when the Confederate troops laid down their arms. Uh, recently on the show, William Marvel uh, presented his case uh, that this was not what happened uh, that General Joshua Chamberlain, uh, famous for his actions at, with the 20th Maine at Gettysburg, uh, was exaggerating in his memoirs that uh, Chamberlain wasn't really in charge of the surrender ceremony and the exchange of salutes between his troops and John Gordon's Confederates never took place, uh, and so on. A, a, uh, a sprightly revisionist account. Uh, but, Patrick, this is one that you and, and Bill Marvel have debated in the pages of North and South magazine. Uh, we have. We and, have. Uh, uh, what, what's your vision? Uh, yeah, I don't think Bill and I will uh, ever agree on this, and hopefully won't hold it against me permanently and just uh, agree to disagree. Uh, but uh, from what we see, what we have uh, information on, primary source material, um, Chamberlain was in charge of the the stacking of arms ceremony. He even wrote a letter to his sister on April um, 13th commenting, uh, which is the day after the stacking of arms, uh, which took place on April 12th, commenting how he commanded it. He even said, I took uh, with my staff and the old flag, I I took post on the right of the line that morning at 5 a.m. and received first Major General Gordon with his corps. And then he goes on to say, we received them with the honors due troops at the shoulder and in silence. They came to a shoulder on passing my flag and preserved perfect order. That's what Chamberlain wrote on April 13th. Um, so there you have a, a good firsthand account. 
but I was curious. Um, I had read what Bill had wrote and didn't necessarily agree because what uh, the veterans had wrote over the years about these uh, the ceremony. Um, Chamberlain actually went out and spoke on this topic very very often, even in uh, 1866 and 1867, uh, he was publicly speaking about the stacking of arms. Uh, and there were federal officers in the crowd very often, uh, including uh, Roman heirs of the Fifth Corps, uh, who could have publicly disputed uh, Chamberlain's claims, and they never did. Uh, Chamberlain even wrote into uh, the National Tribune uh, and when it was first established, which was a uh, mouthpiece basically for Union veterans, and they would refight the battles. And in, I think it was 1882, he was one of the first ones to write about the stacking of arms ceremony. And usually there would be soldiers that would write back and say, no, it didn't happen that way, it happened this way. Uh, but nev- no one ever really refuted uh, Chamberlain's claims uh, to the stacking of arms. Now, he later wrote a book called The Passing of the Armies, which he used very high Victorian prose. Uh, But the story essentially is the same as what he had told people in 1866 and 1867 and and also in his letter in 1865. Um, I was curious, though. I went to the National Archives, researched the order book of the the Fifth Army Corps, and the only one to actually issue orders for the stacking of arms ceremony was Joshua Chamberlain. So uh, there's a pretty good body of evidence here to confirm that this is that it really did happen uh, the, the way he said it happened. Yes, yes, undoubtedly. So um, the, uh, the ceremony certainly takes place in, in this dramatic fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask a question about the campaign leading up to the surrender ceremony, the, the Appomattox campaign. My thought, uh, as when I began reading about the Civil War uh, when I was a boy and and ever since, was often to uh, pretty much lose interest by the time you get to Petersburg and everything settles into trench warfare. Uh, It wasn't quite as interesting. You have the crater and a few other highlights, uh, lowlights. But um, but the Appomattox campaign reminds me of, of when you turn on the TV on Sunday afternoon and you're just getting over the two-minute warning in the fourth quarter, and one team is ahead by four touchdowns. They've still <laughs> got to play two minutes uh, sure, of, sure. of American football for our international listeners. That's, that's uh, a great analogy. But you know, there's there's no there's no point in watching. You know, there's, there's nothing the losing team can do at that point to overcome that deficit. Um, I use that same analogy uh, talking uh, with Mark Bradley about the. Uh, Joe Johnson's campaign uh, that ends, uh, or the Bentonville campaign mm-hmm. that ends in North Carolina. And I think it's even better there because really they could have done nothing. Uh, but maybe maybe my analogy is not quite right for Appomattox. Could Lee have gotten away? Could anything else have happened? You, you know, I think your analogy is right, and and of course the outcome was going to be a federal victory. But the, those two minutes, even though the Lee's army was going to be defeated at the end of those two minutes it's probably some of the most exciting interesting and remarkable incidents that took place uh throughout the war people just haven't focused on it um give us an example well there's this uh incredible battle at uh high bridge where um 
the Confederates capture two federal regiments that are sent to burn the bridge over the Appomattox River, which was one of the uh, largest bridges in the world at the time. Um, they capture the 54th Pennsylvania and the 123rd Ohio, um, and some of the last general officer casualties take place there. Uh, Brevet Brigadier General uh, Theodore Reed on the federal side is killed, uh, leading a charge of the, the 4th Massachusetts Cavalry, uh, four companies, and um, James Deering from, uh, from Lynchburg is mortally wounded, and he is the last Confederate general officer uh, killed during the war. Um, there's espionage, there's uh, Federal soldiers that are wearing Confederate uniforms that infiltrate the Confederate Army, and they even capture uh, a North Carolinian, Rufus Berenger, after the Battle of Namazine Church. Um, incidents like that, and of course the Battle of Sailor's Creek, uh, which is the largest battle on the campaign, and Lee loses uh, about 8,000 men captured there, about a fifth of his army. It's called Black Thursday in the Confederacy. You know, I, I had never paid the, really the slightest bit of attention to the Battle of Sailor's Creek until um, I gave a talk in Lynchburg a few years ago and drove home on the Lee surrender route uh, from, from Lynchburg to North Carolina and uh, and and stopped at the battlefield, uh-huh. and now uh, and 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 it it is really I found it moving. Uh, it was very uh, something about the the willingness of the troops on both sides to fight in a cause that many of them must have realized was nearing its end. Uh-huh. Um, now maybe that's that's putting our own vision onto it. Maybe the the Confederates shared Jeff Davis's vision that they would just. Well, to the hills. Lee was hoping for the best, and he, of course, never intended to surrender at Appomattox. His whole objective from leaving Richmond and Petersburg was to go south and join forces with Joseph Johnston. But the lines from Petersburg to Richmond were about 35 miles in length. He also had troops uh, between Richmond and Petersburg at Bermuda 100. He needed a place to concentrate the army, and that was at a place called Amelia Courthouse. And as Lee's concentrating the army there, Grant does things a little bit different. Meade said he would follow Lee wherever he goes, and Grant says, no, we're going to march to the south of him. We're going to outmarch him and bring the war to an end, and that's exactly what happens. Uh, So when the Confederates form their army at Amelia and start to move south, they run into the Federals at a place called Jetersville. And uh, that's the best chance for Lee to get through is, there, but he's going to have to fight a battle, which he doesn't want to do. He wants to get to North Carolina with his army intact. So in turn, he has to go further west, hoping to outflank the Federal Army and uh, skirt around to the south of him. But uh, in the end, the Federals actually outmarch Lee's army and cut him off at Appomattox Courthouse. And there's a particularly uh, interesting little battle, and Civil War Preservation Trust is uh, applied for a million-dollar grant to preserve 40 acres at the, the Battle of Appomattox Station where George Custer's uh, cavalry division uh, overran uh, 25 pieces of artillery of Reuben Lindsey Walker on April 8th and uh, effectively blocked the Richmond-Lynchburg stage road, which Lee was using for his line of retreat. And, and uh, it's one thing Lee knows when cavalry gets in his way, and then when he finds infantry has also gotten there. Right. That's that's the hard marching of the Federal 24th and part of the 25th Corps, 
and also the Fifth Corps. They march over 30 miles on April 8th, uh, marching for about 20 hours straight. And, and, uh, and at that hard. point, Lee has federal troops on three sides. The only way to go is north, but it, of course, doesn't want to go north, and there lies the James River. And the bridge had already been burned by the locals when Sheridan had passed by in March, so he was effectively surrounded. And uh, I know time's going to run short. I know you mentioned Ely Parker. Yes. Yeah, so who was he, and, and uh, why did you write about him? Uh, Ely Parker was a, a Seneca Indian chief, and uh, he had met General Grant uh, out in Galena, Illinois, where he was building a custom house for uh, he was a treasury agent, and he was an engineer, and he built the custom house in, in Galena, Illinois. Uh, later in the war, Grant took him on his staff. And uh, during the surrender meeting, after Grant wrote out his terms in pencil and Lee made some edits to him, he turned him over to a fellow named Theodore Bowers, but Bowers got rather nervous and botched the job, and it was turned over to Ely Parker, uh, this Seneca Indian chief who they said had the best penmanship in the Army. Uh, so he actually wrote out the terms of the surrender. Uh, and at the end of the meeting, when Grant is presenting different officers, which are some neat characters in the room, Seth Williams, who was Lee's adjutant at West Point. Lee was commandant at West Point from 1852 to 1855. Robert Lincoln, son of Abraham Lincoln, is a captain on Grant's staff. And then there's this Indian, uh, Seneca Indian, and uh, Lee says to him, uh, at least according to Ely Parker's account, says, it's good to see one real American here today. And Parker uh, responded, General, we're all Americans. Uh, so it, uh, it, there, there really was some good feeling to come out of Appomattox. The Confederates received very generous terms. Uh, they were not going to be sent to prison camp. They were going to be paroled and allowed to go home. Uh, their officers could keep their sidearms and personal baggage. Uh, Confederate soldiers, cavalry, artillerymen that owned their horses could take them home with them, uh, use them for planning. And then uh, Grant uh, was kind enough to order 25,000 rations sent to feed the Confederate Army. Um, Lee's surrender is a model for all future Confederate surrenders, and this is how you began your program was uh, that the, the Civil War ended at Appomattox. And, of course, the answer, just like did Lincoln own slaves, did the surrendered Appomattox end the Civil War? And the answer is no. It didn't end the Civil War because there were still three other major Confederate armies in the field uh, and some, some minor ones. Uh, but all those armies received the same terms that Lee received at Appomattox. So it was a model for the future surrenders of Confederate, Confederate armies. So the the war does not literally end there, but it certainly, uh, uh, as you say, it sets the tone for the ending. And, and It does set the tone, and fortunately, although there are small skirmishes, uh, people point to Palmito Ranch out in Texas, there were no major battles after the surrender at Appomattox. There was some fighting the, the same day uh, down in uh, Alabama, but... Uh, there were no major battles after April 9th. Well, it's a, it is a fascinating story and, and a fascinating place to visit. And with the uh, the, the technology, the, the very nice museum that, that you have there, it's it's well worth your time. It's um, it's in the middle of nowhere, to put it charitably. 
Well, we do have 29, about 20 minutes, 20 minutes away. So you, uh, you can 29. get there, yes. Uh, but that there. actually adds to the preservation aspect, I suppose. It, it does. We, we uh, get, a, you know, a little over 100,000 visitors a year. And back in the heyday, it, you know, we got over 200,000 visitors a year. So, um, But it is a, a, a wonderful and peaceful place to, to visit. Um, and uh, a great time to come visit is in April when we have our anniversary events from April 8th through April 13th. Uh, and there's a schedule for that on the park website. Uh, what's the address of that website? Uh, <laughs> you know, you just one? have to go to Appomattox Courthouse National Historical Park and do do a search on that. You'll find it from there. Or, we'll look or up through the National Park uh, website. So look look for the National Park website. Look for Appomattox Courthouse. Uh, it's definitely worth a visit for anyone listening to the show. You would definitely find it worth your while to see this place where the uh, the Army of Northern Virginia lays down its arms to the Army of the Potomac. It is a moving and important location in American history. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Jerry. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.